episode 185 of Late Night Linux, recorded on the 4th of July 2022. I'm Joe, and with me are Phelan. Howdy. Graham. Hello, everyone. And Will. Hello. Let's get straight on with our discoveries then. Phelan, what is Vidi? Vidi is the next generation in watch command. It's so exciting and amazing, it's unbelievable. But it is quite cool, because it does have time machine mode, which allows you to see like past snapshots of whatever that command is. For instance, if you're doing a PS and you want to look at a particular set of commands and you want to see how they change over time, you can hit spacebar, engage time machine mode, and then get a snapshot every whatever your iteration number of seconds is and see a, a change of that, which is remarkably useful if you're trying to track down stuff because it saves you having to write shonky scripts to uh, dump PS into a, like a text file every couple of seconds and then do diffs on them. I love the little avatar they've got and Vidiwell go for Vidiwell. <laughs> you know, he's pretty good, isn't it? Yeah, I was thinking Vidiwell. From yeah. a clockwork orange. Yeah, the avatar's got his uh, eyes pinned open and all that. <laughs> it does look quite handy, but the only thing I ever use watch for is uh, watch 3-H to see whether I'm running out of RAM or not. Well, now you'll be able to see when you ran out of RAM, mm. how far ago that was. <laughs> mm. Yeah. So how easy is it to install then? Linux was not as easy as you'd think, uh, but it's just a tarball. And to be honest, it's uh, all written in Go. So it's very simple to just drop it into like your, well, I dropped it into my user local bin, or maybe you have a local bin directory you want to use instead. But uh, yeah, very easy to do. I don't think it's packaged in Snap or Flatpak yet. I certainly couldn't find it anyway. But yeah, it's very simple. It's just a single binary, really. Uh, I see the installation instructions are for homebrew and Mac ports. I I see. I see exactly how it is. Yeah, (laughs) it it does have that feeling around it, all right, because it's got colors and stuff, you know, and Mm. obviously in Linux world, (laughs) we're not usually allowed to have those types of things. It does look really nice. I'm going to try it. I I might even create a snap. That's not advertising, but uh, (laughs) ghost stuff is really easy to do. Honestly, if you did, that'd be great because I don't like just using tarballs because I forget to update it for about three years. Okay, then. I promise by the time this podcast goes out. You say it goes easy because it's all just statically compiled into one binary, isn't it? Yeah, and it's usually GoMod handles all the dependencies and it's usually pretty straightforward. Right. Well, look forward to trying that one out then. And uh, hopefully it'll take less than 45 seconds to uh, start. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you could run watch command against it, couldn't you? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Will, in a shocking turn of events, your discoveries are to do with lights and automating them. Yeah. So off the back of talking about my new mouse the other week, I was chatting with Roger Light on the Telegram channel, and he pointed me at Cheer Lights, which is a community of interconnected color-changing lights, where if you've got a compatible device, you can have your device, your lights, sorry, change color along with everybody else who's hooked into this particular project on the internet and it's been going for well well over 10 years now maybe 12 years i think there's a very very basic api you can subscribe via mqtt it's got uh, an api in thingspeak you can talk to it over http it's really really easy to find out what color your lights should be and people have built all manner of devices to interface with this and this is the real value and the really interesting thing about cheer lights for me is the the community of people who have come together to build 
all different sorts of interfaces to, to very basic color changing lights in the interests of making your lights the same color as some other random person on the internet. And I think it's just a nice community thing to do. It's a little bit of fun. It's dead easy to get involved in. And it's still going after, you know, 10 plus years on the internet. I, th I think it's a, a nice project to, to read about and get involved in. And off the back of that, Roger wrote Cheer Lights Hid, which uses Libra, what do we call it? Libra T-Bag. Yeah, it uses Libra T-Bag <laughs> to, uh, to, to subscribe to the MQTT feed and change your mouse color in line with everybody else on the internet. So yeah, have a look at that. There's something very dystopian about people sitting in their little dark rooms and uh, only being connected by the color of the lights that are in there. No, but it's called cheer lights, though, so it's happy. All <laughs> oh, right, okay, so it's utopian, not some tech dystopia where that's the only thing that makes us happy. Yeah, yeah. No, that does sound quite cool, really. I'm just joking. So, uh, yeah, well, if I ever do get uh, a mouse, which we'll come to in a bit, that's got lights on it, maybe I'll have to check this out. All right, Graham, hacking a Netgear router to be a mesh satellite. Yeah, so I can't recommend this. Certainly I can't. <laughs> I wouldn't recommend getting a Netgear Orbi mesh setup for home, but I have one. But they're expensive. The satellites, which are the things that extend the network, are, well, in the UK, they're about 140 quid per satellite. But the router, the thing that kind of, I don't know, marshals all of the connections or at least tells the satellites what's, what to do is the same hardware, but a much cheaper price. You can pick them up for 30 or 40 quid. And it's been reported that you can convince a router to be a, a satellite, so you buy the cheaper version of it and then you reflash it. And I've been successfully able to do this. I didn't come up with this. Other people have come up with it. But basically, you have to unlock a Telnet prompt. And these things are running OpenWRT. Um, amazingly, I mean, it's a custom Netgear build of that, of course, but you can get into it and then start running UCI commands. And you can basically change the model number through this quite straightforwardly so it will accept an older version of the satellite firmware and then you can update it from that point this is updating a new router and it becomes a satellite and you can cheaply relatively cheaply extend your network this way which is something i really needed to do in our house sounds complicated but if you end up with a netgear orbi network and you want to extend it for cheaper than the official price you can maybe maybe <laughs> <laughs> and if that's not uh, palatable to most people I'm finally being sent a touchscreen handheld KDE plasma device uh, from Valve. It should arrive later on this week. So I'm really excited about that. And one of the things I'm going to run on it, because I run it on my desktop, is a Vita 3K, which is a PlayStation Vita emulator. And it's just amazing how far emulation has come now. This is a couple of years old, but it's finally starting to be able to run really decent frame rates vita games if you have the original copies of course and can make a copy of them but also there are lots of open source games for the playstation vita because it was kind of abandoned by sony and it became a bit of a homebrew paradise and even though it may not make sense on a linux machine already the form factor and the way they've been configured to use controls really makes them work really well so i'm really looking forward to use it on the steam deck that should arrive later on this week so the Vita was the follow-up to the PSP then? Yeah, that's right. It was the kind of the successor to the PSP, which came out, I don't know, 10 or 12 years ago. The Vita had like all of these touch-sensitive touch sensitive screen, a touch-sensitive back bit. It had an OLED display, the first version. It was quite a powerful little device. Ah, it sounds like the Vita might be a decent, cheap handheld for gaming then. Can you run emulators on the Vita? 
yeah, you can. And I, I do. I've got one and I use it all the time. And all of these open source games on it run really well. You can play like, you know, like there's a there's a real trend for re-engineering old games. And if you have the original data files, you can run them. Doom's a good example, but it can run much more recent titles than that. It also runs a Moonlight client. I've talked about Moonlight before, which is the kind of game streaming, low latency game streaming from a PC. And I've played full games streaming to my Vita because I like to sit on the sofa somewhere rather than in front of the same computer I work at. Always amazes me that people can work on these homebrew things for such a closed platform that no doubt Sony have made it. Yeah, it is all evil proprietary, my finds this week, but it's there's a way, always a way through, I suppose. It's the happy message. Nerds uh, find a way. <laughs> okay, this episode is sponsored by Collide. Traditional endpoint security tools can make your workplace feel like a surveillance state, turn users and the IT team into adversaries, and ultimately drive your employees to work on unsecured personal devices. It doesn't have to be this way. Collide is a device security solution built around honest security. Their philosophy is that employees aren't your biggest security risk, they're your biggest allies, and your relationship with them should be based on transparency and informed consent. Collide works by notifying your employees of security issues via Slack and giving them step-by-step instructions on how to resolve them themselves. For IT and security teams, Collide provides the right level of visibility for Mac, Windows, and Linux devices. It can answer questions about your fleet's security that traditional MDMs can't. You can meet your security goals without compromising your values. Visit collide.com slash late night Linux to find out how. If you follow that link, they'll hook you up with a goodie bag just for activating a free trial. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash late night Linux. All right, well, my discovery is Rufus. So this, again, is sort of related to evil proprietary stuff. Rufus itself is open source, so... That's the excuse to talk about it. But if you are looking to install Windows, you can download the ISO directly from Microsoft these days quite easily. And then you can put it onto a USB stick with Rufus. Microsoft has their own tool, but it's quite finicky and it needs like a proper untouched ISO. So if if you've got a, uh, for some whatever reason, an ISO that uh, is not directly from them, Rufus is the way. But there's a beta of Rufus at the moment, which will become 3.19, which allows you to kind of fuck with the ISO a bit as you flash it to the USB drive. And one of the outstanding features is that Windows 11 22H2 requires a Microsoft account, no matter what, unless you do some hackery with the fucking registry, I don't know, whatever. But anyway, that is built into Rufus now. So you can just put it onto the USB stick with all that hacked already. And then as long as you've not got a network cable in, you can install Windows 11 without a Microsoft account, just with a local account, which is pretty sweet. And you can also um, do things like automatically tell it no to all the privacy invasion shit and so not have to bother with that. Rufus is just the way to put an ISO onto a USB stick if you are in Windows land, as far as I'm concerned. The only thing that I love about my KVM Windows host is the fact that it doesn't have the TPM stuff enabled. Therefore, I never get Windows 11 upgrades from my Windows 10. Oh, well, with Rufus, you can disable the requirement for that as well. So No, no, that's a feature. <laughs> <laughs> well, say you want to install it on a, an old, in quotes, laptop that's perfectly capable. Well, you can get around that as well without having to resort to manual ways to do it. Rufus will just take care of all of that for you. Stop helping these potential Linux customers, Joe. Jesus. (laughs) I am of the opinion that 
use the tool for the job. And if the tool for you is Windows, then why not make it as easy as possible? Double claw head hammer. <laughs> Look, if some open source software can make life easier for you, if you're stuck in Windows land, then that's great as far as I'm concerned. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> A very quick mention for one sent in by JC, Raspberry Pi restores guitar amp complete with effects. This is an article on Tom's Hardware that's really about a YouTube video that uh, is embedded within the page. And it's pretty cool. This guy just gutted this Vox amplifier and replaced all of the internals, including the power amp and everything. And uh, the brains of it are a Raspberry Pi. And it's got the standard effects that you'd expect from uh, this kind of amplifier. It's uh, good stuff. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I think he was inspired by my Guitar X Pi 3 demo from last uh, Flostock Live. Uh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. true story. <laughs> <laughs> On to a bit of admin then. First of all, thank you everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. You can learn more at latenightlinux.com slash support. And remember, for $10 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed that includes this show, Linux After Dark, and Linux Downtime. And if you want to send in your feedback or anything, really, you can email show at latenightlinux.com. Let's do some feedback then. Thank you, everyone, for your mouse recommendations. I did end up getting a really shit cheap Logitech wireless mouse because my other one just was just sticky and horrible and just wasn't working anymore. But uh, once this starts to play up a bit, which I think won't be too long, I'm going to seriously look into those suggestions. So thank you, everyone. And Fernando got in touch to say, Git just published version 2.37, and it includes something I did that some of your terminal-addicted hosts might enjoy, a new configuration setting that lets you define an arbitrary Vim layout when resolving merge conflicts. Can it get any cooler than this? I tried to explain how this new feature works here in case you're interested, and then a link to the blog post that I'll put in the show notes. So this is really cool. Fernando is obviously very proud of this, and uh, rightfully so, I think. It's, it's cool to get uh, something merged into uh, a big project like Git, so well done. And Philip wrote in with a follow-up on something we talked about previously. Just heard the question from Mika in New Zealand about tools for recording and monitoring radio station audio. I had exactly the same problem to solve for a community radio station. The tool to solve this is called Liquid Soap. It has been rock solid for me for over three plus years. It not only records our broadcast for legal retention purposes, but also feeds our online streaming server and monitors alerts for dead air. Please feel free to pass on my email address to Micah, as I'm Australian, so close to New Zealand, and more than happy to share my liquid soap config to help get him up and running with it, as it can be a little archaic to configure. And I did pass on Philip's email address, and Micah said, thank you very much. But I thought we'd better mention it anyway, because there may be someone out there who can benefit from it. So we'll put a link in the show notes that Graham has thankfully just found for us. So it sounds like a success story there. Antonin wrote, I have a question that might end up as a suggestion. Regarding the discoveries you do and list in the show notes, do you have a consolidated list somewhere? No. If not, I think it would be valuable for listeners to retrieve them easily. The RSS feed can be passed all right, but it would be a valuable library of tools, I believe. This sounds an awful lot like a fun coding project for someone who isn't us. <laughs> to be honest, I actually think a good list would be quite a good idea because sometimes there's stuff that we've found that I would find useful, even if I may have found it myself, <laughs> but have forgotten. I know, but how would you categorize them? You just put them in a list with a description and that's it. Ah, you see the description, that's the key part. That's not in the show notes, so you can't just grab that out or whatever. There's always a flaw. <laughs> Okay, I am no coder, 
but it couldn't be that hard, I would imagine, to download the RSS feed, grep it or whatever, use Python to get all the links out and the names of the stuff, and then just take the first bit of the web page that it links to, and that's probably going to be some sort of description. It might be fun to try and download the automatically generated subtitles from YouTube and then parse that text and pick out from it the descriptions that we we give it. And then decide whether it's sentient or not. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure that someone much cleverer than any of us will come up with a great solution to this, but uh, I do not have time to do this. I'm sorry. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash late night Linux, support the show, and get $100 free credit. From their award-winning support, offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace, or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. And check out their managed MySQL, Postgres, and MongoDB databases that allow you to quickly deploy a new database and defer management tasks like configuration, managing high availability, disaster recovery, backups, and data replication. Simple and fast to deploy with secure access, their flexible plans include daily backups. So go to linode.com slash late night Linux, create a free account, and you'll get $100 in credit and support the show. That's linode.com slash late night Linux. A few weeks ago, after we stopped recording, we started having quite an interesting conversation. I said, no, let's stop. Let's talk about this on air. And so let's, let's try and recreate the magic, chaps. <laughs> <laughs> the crux of it was VC funding and profitability in open source. And we were saying, if you've got an open source project that is backed by VC funding that isn't profitable, does that matter? Like, it, do we care about profitability and the potential problems that come with these VC-funded companies. So I think I was initially having a bit of a whinge about this because, you know... You moaning! I know, (laughs) yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? I mean, I think it was off the back of things like Lyft and Uber now having to actually price realistically. And, well, what a shock. They can't because they were just burning through funding all the time to, like, essentially make themselves cheaper than was possible. But... The reason I was come up with this is the fact that I was thinking, if you have this in software, you can massively undercut all your competition to the point where they go out of business because they already are established and they have bills to pay and they don't have a magic money tree or angels that deliver cash in bundles. And we end up overall, I think, worse off by the fact that the VC is eventually going to dry up, doesn't have a proper business model. And meanwhile, all the other people that they were competing against who had business models and were relatively okay have now gone out of business and we're kind of left with everything in the shits. But that is going to happen regardless. And I know that's quite a defeatist attitude, but it's going to happen whether it is an open source company or a proprietary company like Uber. And so surely it's better that it's an open source company and if it doesn't survive and it kills everything else and then dies itself, at least the code that the engineer is working on it with that VC funding is available for everyone to carry on with if they want. I think we've seen a couple of projects come out of Uber for Golang that have been reused elsewhere. But I would imagine that the 
vast majority of the code that is being developed inside Uber, for example, is specific front-end work, specific back-end work, specific app work. Like, there's nothing in there. If Even if the whole thing was open source, that you or I may reuse in other projects and benefit from. So I, I'm not convinced that having uh, having all of that software done in an open source manner is really relevant in this case. To Phelim's point, I think that the bigger threat is that when all of the VC funding dries up and the companies go away, we're left with very little choice, if any at all. I think that that threat is real. And I think that the benefits of that software development being done in the open are extremely limited to the point of not really mattering. I'm still of the opinion that more open source software is a good thing, regardless of how bespoke or specific it might be to a certain thing. I mean, it's it's more open. You've got greater trust in the company and what they're doing. And I think there have been at least a few examples. I mean, it's this is there's a long history of this happening. And the first thing I think of is like Easel and the Nautilus file manager for GNOME back in the day, which was kind of, a, I don't know, a luxury file manager that uh, was developed on VC funding. But of course, the world has changed massively since then. And I can't think of any good examples where there's been a code drop effectively from a project that was, you know, well funded. But I still think maybe one day in the future, when we have our own machine learning code to derive code from open source code, we can use all this code to make better software. (laughs) Okay. I mean, I guess a shot against this might be something like a blender but i don't think they already were a company that kind of just went bust and then it went open source so i don't think that well it was funded wasn't it they raised the money yeah they did the they ra- yeah that's true and the, but i mean it wasn't like a project that was trying to crush everybody else like render man and all that it, the, you know they weren't going out there in the same way i'm more thinking of someone competing in the same space i mean Yes, it's not a great example of the fact that Uber was competing against taxis as they exist right now. But, you know, I think a lot of people went out of business or went broke and had to do something else because of that. And I don't know whether it's a great idea, but should we stipulate that you have to have a a profitable business to start off, you know, or at least prove some sort of realistic spend and remuneration from your uh, your clients so you're not like creating these false business models essentially like you would have to go to your bank manager to ask for a proper loan well no because the way i see it if a bunch of venture capitalists want to give a company a bunch of money to literally burn through then if that's going to produce some open source code then have at it you know talk it up convince them to give you all the money in the world to pay people to work on open source software. That has to be a net good, like Graham said. The more open source code we have, the better. Even if it's obscure and seemingly not going to help anyone, maybe someone will come along and use part of it to make something great in the future. I'd rather the VC money went to a company working on open source code than on proprietary code, and they're going to throw that money at someone, or at least they used to before things went to shit. (laughs) I don't disagree with the... The ideal of if money's going anywhere, then it should go to open source friendly projects. I think that that can only be a net good. However, I think that the idea of people reusing someone else's code is a little bit um, 
Well, I, I, I think it's a nice idea, but it doesn't happen because as we've seen in open source over and over and over again is that, oh, there are, you know, 13 different ways of doing this thing. If you start your own VC funded program, you're going to employ a whole load of engineers to invent the 14th version. And that style will just continue forever and ever. So, uh, yeah, you know, it, it would be nice if all VC funding went to produce some common good. But I just, I feel like open source developers are not going to reuse that. Yeah, I think one of the dangers is it may be open source, but it may well be totally dependent on one particular cloud provider, for example. They might totally depend on the features that that particular cloud provider, whoever that is, offers. And then it's not really of any general use to anyone who wants to use a different cloud provider, for example. Yeah, and if you take a, a sort of a spurious look at this, maybe even take a look at the various chat applications that Google has both spawned and dis- and killed repeatedly. And I think that's why we can all agree that Google has the best chat app because, oh no, wait, they don't. It's probably dead already. <laughs> They killed another one recently, didn't they? They did. Was it Hangouts? I can't even remember. Yeah, I don't know. I do have a lot of sympathy with what you're saying about those services taking open source software, but I can't see a better way. I don't think we should be stipulating this kind of usage requirement in licenses and limiting the use of open source software. I think it's just a... A, a possible side effect or negative side effect that we just got to live with because the advantages outweigh it. I don't think we can start stipulating things in licenses because then they won't be free software anymore. So what power do we have then in this hypothetical discussion? <laughs> the power that we have is shaming people, is culture, is standards, is norms. But so much of it is done in private. That's perhaps some of the limitations of some of the more... Um, permissive licenses that you don't know who's using OpenSSL or whatever until something breaks. And then the shaming comes too late. So you're saying that as part of any culture change, we would also need to make people use proper free software licenses, according to failing. Correct. <laughs> None of your dirty permissive ones. Ugh. I think I'm more aligned with that than not. I mean, I'm not Strongly, I, I am more aligned with those kind of license, yes, than the, the totally permissive ones. Not strongly, but I do think it would help. It does help solve this kind of problem and forces people to at least consider the upstream project when they're making changes or they rely on it for a huge part of their infrastructure. I do think it is very important to not start changing licenses, though. Like we've seen that before, these various hosted services that are putting these uh, companies out of business, essentially, or stealing their revenue is one way to look at it. And that's something that Drew DeVault pointed out with the uh, the GitHub thing that we talked about last week, the Copilot. Like, don't stipulate in your license that it can't be used by a machine learning thing because then it's not free software anymore. You can only really change things via a, a cultural change, I think. And that is incredibly difficult to do. Yeah, and I don't know if you can. I think it's a bit like, well, in UK politics, where it's so easy to shame people who are public. So what most people of privilege do is disappear and don't say anything and keep put their houses a long way between behind drives and locked gates and, and keep a low profile. And I think that's what the huge megacorps probably do with all the open source software they use. Yeah, they don't talk about voting for Brexit and Tories, but 
they fucking do it anyway. Yeah, and and then it's it's the smaller companies and the, the smaller individuals who get caught up in it and perhaps aren't so relevant to the overall argument or usage statistics, the things that make the real difference. I don't think so. I don't think awareness and shaming will change anything. You're saying that people won't vote with their feet and their wallets and their clicks? Not in a big enough amount to matter to the big, important businesses i mean on a small scale for small linux companies yes it might help hosting providers for linux people maybe yeah but then you'll still buy the next uh macbook with their max pro ultra because it's cool honestly i probably would i like to have all the things (laughs) (laughs) and i still love linux and choose linux on top of all that and i'd much rather choose linux in full awareness of everything else that's available than choose it from some kind of zealotry yeah agreed well, do let us know what you think, dear listener, about all of this that we've been talking about. Show at latenightlinux.com. But with that, we'd better get out of here then. We'll be back next week when, I keep saying this every two weeks, we're supposed to talk about the news, but usually nothing happens during the summer. But so far, so good. But uh, we'll have to see what happens. Anyway, until then, I've been Joe. Yeah, I've been Phelan. I've been Graham. And I've been Will. See you later. Mm-hmm.